Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, June 16th, 2021, and you're listening to episode 46. Today, we speak with Donalo Gallicor about Glendalough Distillery, located about an hour south of Dublin, Ireland. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, A Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right, the project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can, by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. Bless. <laughs> cheers. cheers. While preparing for this week's interview, we discovered the story of St. Kevin from a cocktail I had at Foreman's Tavern in Toluca Lake, California. The cocktail was called St. Kevin's Fire, so we decided St. Kevin's story would be the focus of this week's Whiskey Chronicles. However, during our interview with Donald, I asked him about the symbol on the Glendalough labels, and his answer led to the story of St. Kevin. Therefore, not only is Donald our guest in today's show, but he's also hosting this week's Whiskey Chronicles. The person on the front of the label, the sort of rustic looking character, is St. Kevin. And St. Kevin was born into nobility in Ireland. He turned his back on that, went, had this independence streak, went over the mountains doing some soul searching, looked down, seeing these two pristine lakes, the sort of bottom of a valley, beautiful glacial valley in Wicklow. He was drawn to them, said he became religious when he went in between them, and he built a civilization and isolation in the Wicklow Mountains. And it's actually monistic settlements like that of that area where the birthplace of distillation occurred. Where I was born and raised and where me and, and the other lads were from is literally a couple of miles away. So when we we're talking about why don't we do something to bring back our heritage of distillation and do cool and interesting things for the category, we're like, well, just down the road is where it all started. It's a beautiful area. It's also known as the City of the Seven Churches. Over a million people go there every year. It's absolutely fascinating. And there's lots of stories around St. Kevin, around St. Kevin and St. Patrick. And there's this sort of folklore slash mystery around it. The story that's depicted on the front of our bottles is St. Kevin and the Blackbird. So it said, and we don't know how true this is, but we lean towards it definitely happens. But it said that he used to pray up to his waist in ice cold water with his hands upstretched towards the heavens. It said that he's very harmonious, very at one with nature. A blackbird flew down and land into his hand. The blackbird was so at peace when she landed there, she laid her eggs, and St. Kevin stood like that for two weeks until the hashlings hatched as they're known to do. 
breaking news. Just this week, the Distilled Spirits Council, a trade association representing makers of distilled spirits sold in the United States, announced a five-year suspension of tariffs levied by the European Union and the U.S. The suspension is a happy byproduct of an agreement to end the two trading partners' nearly 20-year-old dispute over aircraft subsidies. The deal will lift the EU's 25% tariff on U.S. rum, brandy, and vodka, as well as the 25% U.S. tariff on liqueurs and cordials from Germany, Ireland, Italy, and Spain, and on some, although not all, brandies from France and Germany. However, the 25% tariff on American whiskey levied by the EU and United Kingdom, tariff stemming from a steel and aluminum trade dispute dating to the Trump presidential administration, will stand, at least for now. According to Katie Labosco, reporting for CNN, untold cases of whiskey are sitting in American distilleries and warehouses just waiting to be shipped abroad. But because the Biden presidential administration hasn't moved to end certain trade disputes that started during the Trump presidential administration, none of it will be going to thirsty customers overseas. The reason? Tariffs have rendered many American whiskeys just too expensive for most European whiskey drinkers. For more information, please visit spiritsofwhiskey.com for complete show notes, including links to further reporting on this developing story. To learn more about the St. Kevin's Fire cocktail I had, or to watch our Kindred Spirits videos about Glendalough Irish Whiskey, log into your VIP account on our website, where you can see all the extra content. Up next, we'll hear more from Donald about his whiskey journey and Glendalough Irish Whiskey. Stay with us. Spirits of Whiskey explores the wide world of whiskey through high-profile and out-of-the-way makers, blenders, writers, ambassadors, innovators, and pioneers. And we've been traveling the world virtually to bring these people and their whiskey journeys to you. We realize just how many great stories we've put aside to share with you at a later date. And that date is here. Spirits of Whiskey is offering access to its new VIP content page to loyal listeners and whiskey lovers who want more. And when it comes to whiskey, who doesn't want more? For as little as 99 cents a month, you can have access to videos related to topics discussed on past podcasts, as well as our new series, The Malting Floor. Sign up now to become a supporter at anchor.fm slash spirits hyphen of hyphen whiskey. That's whiskey with an E. Click on the support button and select the contribution level that's right for you. Once you've submitted your payment information, just visit our website, spiritsofwhiskey.com, to create your personal VIP access account. We can't wait to see you in the VIP lounge. Join us. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we're very fortunate to have with us Mr. Donald O'Gallacore, brand manager and co-founder of Glendalock Distillery, makers of Glendalock Irish Whiskey in County Wicklow, Ireland. Welcome, Donald. Yes, welcome. Perfect, perfect. Absolute pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Love being able to share some of our stories, some of our whiskey, of course, some of our wild gins. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, as we always start out with the show, we always ask our guests what their whiskey journey is. So as a wee little lad in Ireland, did you see yourself working and or starting up this kind of a company? Or did you see yourself <laughs> as a train engineer or a you know doctor, lawyer, something? An astronaut. Well, yes. And how did you get from a wee little lad in Ireland to now promoting this in Chicago? Good stuff. Yeah. So I think originally grown up as a wee lad, I didn't really have sort of much time for school. I wanted to actually be a fireman for most of it. And then I realized that it was very hard to get into the fire brigade in Ireland and 
I started working in construction and in the summers and doing a long-winded thing here. But anyway, when I was about 17, I was still in high school and I looked at this job and there's a job for promotions and essentially running promotions, whether it's alcohol promotions, whether it was Murphy Stout, it was Jameson, it was Nepal Castle, it was like certain like vodka bands and Bulmer Cider. Mm-hmm. So I got my start at 17 before I was legally able to drink. Mm-hmm. And I started doing promos, these alcohol promos, whether it was like for, I think one was with Nepal Castle when they were sponsoring um, the Irish Open and all that. And I just, I fell in love with it. I had no problem as always going up to people and talking to them and telling them about it. And people loved hearing about that, especially if they're getting a drink about it they were into it and so I was good at that and I started managing teams when they were activating me and being brought into these suppliers with these nice offices and you know with like permanent car and stuff like that and then I realized that yeah if I wanted to get into this business I probably have to focus at school so I put my head down I actually <laughs> I went then to university and after university I got with an independent bottler that was just making waves in the US and uh, it's now a distillery and I was dropped into Atlanta, Georgia with just go and do. And uh, I sort of learned the business from the ground up from there, like staff trainings, how to talk about it, how to deal with the distributor, how to everything, how to talk to a distributor in a sales meeting, how to talk to bars, how to, like how to get things going. So we, I built up that state that they were doing 300 cases to three and a half thousand cases. And then we actually launched and that brand and their portfolio nationally with a national importer. And all the while, I was actually speaking with my cousin Barry, who was also in the drinks industry, but from a more sort of research side. And we kept on talking and we used to meet up with the other crew that we ended up all coming together on the distillery. And it was sort of two things. It was we seen firsthand what was going on in the US where there was this sort of rise and tide of these new distilleries that were looking at their own sort of heritage where there's the resurgence of rye in like Maryland and right. different areas when they they had their own hit. Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. 100% and the Pennsylvanian rye and all that. And people were looking at weeded bourbons and say, this back in the day, people used to make this. And there's very early ages of the sort of craft distilling revival. I thought that was fascinating. And then secondly was that we were all into Irish whiskey and had been for many, many years. And we used to meet up for pints and drink whiskey and talk about it. If you work in Irish whiskey, you know this, and everyone's probably heard this. Like we used to rule, like the birthplace of distillation goes back to these old monastic settlements in Ireland. So we invented like whiskey. At at our height, we ruled the world with whiskey through a couple of different events, and we could get into it, but wars, prohibitions, all all of (laughs) us. It's apologizing for prohibition. Yeah. Europe actually led the way on temperance. We just kind of followed. And as Americans do, we tend to go over the top with these political movements. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a couple of things back by back. But you know, my point being is we knew our own heritage and it's like, well, why the hell aren't we doing something like this for our own? Sure, sure, places like just down the road from us, like Glendalough, uh, is where the birthplace of distillation occurred. So that's sort of how we got into it. And then I moved back home from Atlanta and we sort of begged, borrowed and stole. We didn't steal, but begged, borrowed and stole to set up a, a small craft distillery in County Wicklow, where I'm from. I'm a local boy there. And that's coming on about 10 years ago now. 
So, yeah. Wow. Did you start distilling whiskey from the get-go? Not from the get-go. We were distilling putching, and then we were sourcing and contracting distilling some whiskey, and then distilling gin, and now distilling whiskey as well. So it's always been a bit of a process with us because we started with a very small investment level. Mm-hmm. We pretty meant to rich people we knew or people that had a bit of money and said, look, we have this idea. We think it's going to work. There's like three distilleries in Ireland like, look what's happening in the States. You know, we can do this. We can tell a story around this. There's such room to do interesting stuff here. Right. So we always started on a very small level, and it was always part of our goal to sort of bit by bit, stage by stage expand. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now we're in 44 different countries. That's awesome. I got the recent IRI data, and we're now the fastest growing Irish whiskey brand slash distillery in the US. Wow. How many US states? We are in 22 states, coast to coast, most major metros. Okay. Very good. Very Almost good. Almost half. That's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. Are you at liberty to divulge the brand, the sales of which you helped grow? Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course. It's uh, it's Bernard Walsh's portfolio. So he has, he had the Irishman, Writer's Tears, Walsh Whiskey. Mm-hmm. He also has a, a great Irish cream as well, which is absolutely phenom- phenomenal stuff. Yeah, I have a great relationship with Bernard. He gave me my start and I worked with for two years and learned the business from the ground up. Yeah, I think we know all of those whiskeys. Wonderful yeah, stuff. Yeah. So what year did you guys start the distillery and how long did it take to go from conception to actually getting your first bottled, whether it was a distilled one that you did or a sourced one that you did? So we were talking about it in 2011. We were founded in 2012. By the end of 2013, we had our property in Newtown. Yeah, so so that's the sort of avenue. And in 2013, I moved back to Ireland. And actually, before that, I moved back to Ireland. But in 2013, we launched with uh, Putchie. Just putching. Okay. That was the first thing that was from the distillery. and uh, The Glendalock new make. Yes, to a degree. You know, there is difference from putching to new make. And, you know, you can use things like crab apples and sugar beet within a mash of putching. So, and it actually dates back to 584 AD, mm-hmm. a precursor to whiskey. It's what whiskey evolved from is a very good way to say it. Another say another way to say it would be what mezcal is to tequila, pochin is to Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. Or gin is to Geneva. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. It's mm-hmm. the origin of whiskey. Or Geneva is to gin, rather. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Geneva being the origin, yes. So, so let's talk a little bit about the poteens. It says mountain strength. So what's the difference between mountain strength and not mountain strength? We used to have three poteens. Huh. We used to have one at a, a 40% ABV, so 80 proof. We used to have one that was sherry cast aged. That was actually a haunt back to this famous distiller, sort of back in the day up near Bushmills in Rock Shark and County Antrim, I digress. And then we had one, because Putin always had a reputation of being slightly higher proof. So, and then where we are and where Glendalock is, is in the Wicklow Mountains. So we released one that was mountain strength. And then increasingly as Putin became sort of less of what we do and what we're about, we just wanted to keep the one that was mountain strength. Okay, now tell me, what is this one are you allowed to tell us what the grain mash bill is for this bad boy? Of course, yeah. So this is going to be 100% malted barley, this mash bill here. Okay. And it is going to be double distilled. And it's off the still in the sort of about 63 inch change. 
Uh, so only a drop of water because we like round numbers. We have it at the 60% 120 proof. That is darn good. Any botanicals in the mix? No, no botanicals in our putching. There is, there is producers that are doing some really cool stuff with, with incorporating botanicals and incorporating, what was one I heard, a honeycomb. Mm. Oh. And even incorporating honey within the distillate. There's historic recipes of crab apples being used within the mash. Like barley's always has been and always will be well, I won't say that. Should always. But barley traditionally has always been king in terms of distillation within Ireland, within pasta, within single malt, within putching. You know, and Philip, we spoke about it briefly. A lot of the Scots Irish people in Scotland, people in Ireland that emigrated in the 1600s to the US, mm-hmm. they went down the Appalachian Trail. They weren't sort of allowed in these more sort of Presbyterian, Lutheran, what have you, town. Indeed. And they started, they had this distilling background from distilling putching, and they started not being able to get barley, and they could get corn, they could get rye, and that's where you get your moonshiners from. Mm-hmm. That's also where you get some of your brands like Old Fitzgerald and these sort of historic bourbon brands that typically have some Irish names to them. Right. Now, what I think is interesting is for a clear spirit, it's got a lot of really good legs on it. It's weighty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they put a hang there. And that speaks to potsdale distillation, but also speaks to barley itself. You can see it actually stays there at the glass. And it doesn't taste like, on the nose rather, if probably go with the first. You don't get that, like, that harshness going to blow the head off you right. straight off the still, straight out of the cast strength type of stuff. It's a bit more subdued. Like, heat is definitely there on, on the back end, but you don't really get it. It, it has this sort of bready, biscuity, almost doughy quality in the nose for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Ugh, I could sniff on this all day and not burn my nose. I like the, the texture makes a mark in the mid palate that just sort of sits there a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about the, the history of putching. Please. But it's sort of wrapped into, obviously, Irish whiskey and some of the whiskeys we tried here. So sort of timeline of events is the Irish monks were traveling around societies to societies in either the 6th century the following couple of hundred years. And they came across the art form of distillation in Greece, where they're distilling for aroma and perfume. So they used to scribe down different technological advances, farming techniques, what have you. They brought that back to Ireland and they started to distill it, essentially distill beer, because beer was sacred within these monks. And yeah, they started to get a taste for it. They called it Ishkabaha, which was anglicized when the English came into Ishki, then whiskey, which probably a lot of people know already. And then the term putching came for it because it comes from the apparatus, a pot still used. A pot still in Gaelic or in Irish is called putta. Um, putching means what comes off a pot still. Uh-huh. So it's essentially in that sort of flowery Irish language. It's, it gives a drop of what comes off the pot still type of thing. And from that point in this, let's call it the sixth century, it sort of creeped out of these monastic settlements, became more of a agricultural pursuit where people would distill excess grains. They would essentially distill it. They would trade it. They would drink it. They would do whatever. Where it changes is when in the 1500s, the English come in in the Tudor's conquest of Ireland and they essentially start building up towns and smaller cities and, you know, sort of make their mark on the island. And they start getting a taste for what all these locals are drinking, whether it's Puchin or Ishkabaha. There's also words of aquavit around it, which is sort of interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And then the English started to tax it like they're known to do, which is always a running theme through Everything I'm going to talk about is how the English taxed Irish whiskey. Yeah, it gets to a point where there's all these sort of laws brought in and people evading them and what have you. 
And it gets to a point in 1661 on Christmas Day where King Charles II makes all distillation illegal because he did it on Christmas Day because he's a bit of a bastard, to be honest. And this created a rift in how whiskey was distilled. Your bigger distilleries in your towns and cities that were set up, there were bigger operations. They got grants to distill from the English and they essentially go big or go home. They mm-hmm. ramped up, they started to age, they started with the fortified wines and you know started to source casks in and all that. But your putching distillers in rural Ireland wanted nothing to do with it. So they kept on distilling in this very ancient way. Hand-built pot stills, soaking barley for a day and a night, essentially smoking it in, in houses as well, grinding it down by hand, cut points by taste, by smell. And there are certain regions of Ireland that were, and to a degree, are still famous to this day. The English tried to put down the illicit distilling industry within Ireland for many, many years. And they used to put community fines on if they found a pot still in your township, the whole town would be fine. Wow. Mm-hmm. There's like these sort of vicious cat and mouse games and there's you know areas of Ireland that declared themselves republics uh, just over illicit distillation. It was the only revenue stream for certain areas. It was the only way they could make a living. And it was always on your reputation it was on your family name to like essentially how you did it, how you went out there. And there was this, you know, a lot of folklore around it. You used to rub it on your hands. If you had arthritis, you used to rub it on greyhounds before races. You used to rub it on horses. Mm-hmm. When you're distilling, you used to put a drop on the ground for the fairies because there's a lot of superstition around that, mm-hmm. and especially around that time in Ireland. You could rub it on your tongue in glassfuls and swallow it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> when Irish whiskey was at its height uh-huh. in the late Late 17 into 1800s, it was estimated that there was 200 large distilleries on the island of Ireland. But there's estimated to be 1,800 illicit putching stills mm. in the island. Mm-hmm. Wow. Putching mm-hmm. outsold and for a certain period of time was considered higher quality than the larger distilleries. And it was the common man's whiskey. And there's this depth of heritage and sometimes it gets a bad rap. People call it moonshine or fire water or whatever. But it got a bad rap in like the 60s, 70s when there's a sort of cheap available bottle of gas. And so people wouldn't have to do it by fire as much. Mm -hmm. And then there's availability of sugar and uh, just cheaper materials that they could use. And so they wouldn't make it out of barley. They'd essentially make it out of sugar water, Mm -hmm. make it as high octane as they could. That was the unscrupulous sort of side of it. But also the younger generation of these very, very traditional putching distillers had no interest in staying in rural Ireland making illicit putting under, like, evading the law, you know, a couple of pounds for a few pints on a weekend, or they could go to London or New York or Boston or Chicago or Australia or whatever. So it got a bit of a bad rap then, but, you know, in its essence, it dates back to the first spirit ever distilled. Right. Mm-hmm. It is the forefather of whiskey. It's what all whiskeys come from. It's what all moonshiners. And it's, a, like, if you put this on a back bar, like, every bottle on the back bar owes itself to that. Every bottle in a liquor store owes itself to Pochi. Yeah. yeah, indeed. I think it's a brief historical sidebar here that I think is germane. Taxation and the history of taxation and the history of spirits innovation are inextricably linked. Mm. You were talking about the, the illicit distilling of Puchin. Spanish taxation is responsible for the rise of mezcal production in Mexico, Pisco production on the West Coast of South America. Yeah, because they were taxing winemaking. Right. Mm. Okay, we'll make brandy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Funny how that goes. Back to the beautiful spirits that you guys have. So 
after your poutines, I keep saying this wrong. How do you say it? Poutine? Poutine. 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 See, we knew this was going to happen, so we wrote it phonetically on it. Oh, you sure did? Yeah. Okay, so your poutine, that was the first thing that you had off the still. And then what was the next thing that you had coming off or that you produced after sourcing? Well, a couple of aged single malts that are discontinued and sold out for us, a seven-year and a 13-year single cast, single malt. We managed to secure interest and parcels of whiskey from a distillery that was about to be purchased that wouldn't have been released by themselves. And we were able to just release them out like that. These things would have been sort of gobbled up. Into- was that Cooley by any chance? Yeah, it was Cooley, yeah. yeah. And uh, so we managed to get these interest and parcels of whiskey. Like, And at the time, an Irish single malt, seven years from like, just here's your single cast, single malt. That wasn't a thing that was really out there that much at all. Right. It, was, it was actually like, it was somewhat innovative. And it's like, that isn't innovative right now. Like, we, you know, it's 2.0 going on 3.0 on the island of Ireland, which is great to see. But when we set up, there was like three large distilleries. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. And the majority of Irish whiskey was blended, was seen as light and sweet, was typically drank in a shot or as mixed drink. Like Irish whiskey was overlooked by the whiskey community, by whiskey drinkers, especially internationally, even though there is such wealth of different styles and flavor profiles historically, and then all this white space in terms of things that people haven't done. And, you know, a big thing for us setting up is we wanted to do that. We wanted to make remarkably different Irish whiskeys that sort of stood out. Right. And if you map out all of our whiskeys versus everything else, these are they're all off on these islands all by themselves. Right. Now those three big makers, presumably at the time there were Bushmills, Cooley and Irish Distillers Limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. But you are now, there are many dozens of Irish whiskey distilleries either already making or in the planning stage. Mm-hmm. You were in the very first wave of new distilleries. We were. We like to say, you know, we were part of the rise and tide of new distilleries. Mm-hmm. We really feel, and I don't think it's too bad to say, or much of a jump to say that we were at the forefront of the Irish yeah. whiskey distillery, uh, Irish whiskey revival. Absolutely. Because when 95 ish percent of Irish whiskey was blended, and and all of it is at a certain price point. We said, we're not going to do a blend. We're not going to do a blend ever. Everything's going to be barrel by barrel aged, non-chill filtered, and in this flavor profile that no one is familiar with mm-hmm. within Irish whiskey. That's awesome. And everyone thought, that's never going to work. What? Of course it's going to work. <laughs> you went to a liquor store in the US, which was the biggest market, still is the biggest market for Irish whiskey. And you've seen three big brands there. You've seen some stuff below it. You might see one or two above it, mm-hmm. but that was it. You know, when I worked in Atlanta for Bernard Walsh, there's two bottles in most stores, and it was entry-level Jameson, entry-level Bushmills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we thought that was a bit of a tragedy, given the history and given what other people were doing for their own heritage. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Given that in the 19th century, it was the world's best-selling whiskey, Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Three to one to Scotch as well in Britain. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by the history of Irish whiskey, and it always makes me so sad when the U.S. prohibition had such a big part in its demise. But well, that was the last nail on the coffin, but there was also our war of independence. So, all, right. you know, so there's all this domestic turmoil, our civil war, which, you know, we didn't get enough in the war of independence. We decided to have another one. <laughs> Right, yeah, you had to have a second one, right? Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> yes, let's go to the next one here. Yeah, this was a release, and I think it's had a couple of different iterations. This was our first whiskey that I think we sort of nailed. This is a double barrel aid single grain, and single grain whiskey has a great history. It has Irish roots, 
and it actually has Irish roots that are wrapped up with putchy. So Aeneas Coffee of the coffee still mm-hmm. used to be a British tax agent in Ireland and used to be tasked with putting putching distillers out of business. And he has a lot of heroin accounts of these cat and mouse games and these vicious sort of fights that they had. They got up in front of the parliament in Ireland and sort of said, like, this is crazy what's going on. Anyway, he became fascinated with how they were distilling. And he thought it was extremely inefficient that they had hand-built pot stills, that they're doing everything by smell, by taste, that they had an open fire and they're like, you know, they're keeping their temperature sort of by eye. And he sort of became fascinated with that and he developed a new kind of still. So he's very humble and shit like that. So he called it after himself, coffee, still C-O-F-F-E-Y. And then he went around Ireland and tried to flog it to these distilleries. And people said, yeah, no chance. Uh, No chance at all. We know your background. and probably have relations in rural Ireland that you've been trying to put out of business. Right. You know, we won't have any of that. And then like single grain whiskey is the backbone of the blends in Scotland, which essentially, you know, took Irish whiskey's place in the 1900s. Like this style of whiskey has become very popularized within Japanese whiskey with your Nika coffee grain and coffee malt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was completely somewhat overlooked within Irish whiskey outside of the blends. And we thought this was a beautiful style that's light and bright. And it's all about the characteristics of the cask. Mm-hmm. So what we wanted to do with this is we wanted to layer on a sweetness so it's called double barrels, so hence there's two barrels. So we wanted to layer on the sweetness because a lot of people think Irish whiskey is sweet, also bourbon sweet. So we want to make this appeal to it. So it's initially aged for three years, three months in a first fill bourbon cask from Wild Turkey, char level number four. So this layers on that beautiful like butterscotch, toffee, vanilla, that typical sweeter bourbon cask note. And then we transfer it over to another first fill barrel from Montilla in Spain. So Olorosa Sherry. Nice. Mm-hmm. The goal of the sherry cask, and you don't see younger whiskies, this is four years old, so it's an extra nine months in the Olorosa sherry. You don't see younger whiskies, or you don't see light whiskies being aged in sherry cask that often. So what we wanted to do is we want to add a complexity. We wanted to add a finish to it. We wanted to add that tannin note, but also that sort of cherry, fig, cranberry. We wanted to add that note. So we actually jokingly call this a gateway Irish whiskey for that very reason. Nice. <laughs> well, it has all of this initial light sweetness, typical notes. Then it gets very atypical and it gets this sherry cask complexity. Mm-hmm. People go, what am I tasting? I didn't know Irish whiskey could taste like that. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that conversation starter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And additionally, as I said previously, it's it's barrel by barrel age. So it goes from bourbon cask into all of sherry cask, brought down at 42% and non-chill filter. It is. It's delicious. It is very delicious. I can taste a little bit of the poutine-like flavor underneath it, I feel like. It has a little bit of a malt comes through in the nose and on the front. Mm-hmm. It's a mixed mash bill of malted barley and organic corn. Okay. So it's a single grain that has two grains. <laughs> so in your classifications of Irish whiskey, single grain is like single malt, single distillery malt whiskey, single grain, single distillery grain whiskey off a of coffee still. Mm-hmm. You could have a four grain single grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just like to confuse people. They really do. I mean, I get it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, a lot of people that are just starting out are like, what? Oh, there's a four grain Canadian. We were interviewing Don Livermore right. of Hiram Walker yeah. recently and Gooderham and Warts, four grain. Mm. I know four grain has been big in uh, within bourbon. I'm thinking of um, E.H. Taylor do a four grain. I think there's a couple other people mm-hmm. that do a four grain, which is interesting. So before we get too much further into the lovely spirits here, 
I still wanted to know a little bit more about your particular journey. So when you got with your cousin, mm-hmm. how did you guys decide how many owners do you have? Six, is it? Five? Uh, it's five of us. Five, five of us. Uh, so who thought of it first and who approached who to become the five of you? Well, so, so my cousin Barry, was a, he worked looking at the drinks industry. So that was he was like a researcher. He worked with a, a guy, a friend of his called Brian. So those two were sort of talking around it. And then he was asking questions from me in terms of like the Irish whiskey market there, the craft distilling market. And, I, you know, we were just sort of talking every, you know, sort of month or so. And then there was a childhood friend. I think you need a map for all of this. There's a childhood <laughs> friend of Gary's called Gary. And then it was his mutual friend with other people called Kevin. So anyway, so everyone had like a different... Same Kevin? Same Kevin. Yeah, same Kevin was gone a while, you know, it was sort of past his day. <laughs> but did Kevin have anything to do with choosing St. Kevin for the bottle? Yeah, he, he would have, yeah. He would have been a strong supporter of that idea, all right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, that's my whiskey. Yeah. But in any case, we met up a couple of times for like pints and we, we got on very well. And, you know, we would drink, we were, we were drinking whiskey and pints is like a, around Christmas time for like a couple of years. And we just sort of went after it from there and it sort of went quickly from there. Yeah. So it's like it was friends and family. That's sort of that's what we sort of said. It's a friends and family distillery. And we roped in a load of extended family members. So my uncle used to run a sales route for us in Dublin, he used to look after a couple of the liquor stores, as he used to call them off licenses, as they call them back home. Two of my brothers and my sister-in-law, Natalia, used to help out on the bottling line whenever we were shorthanded and used to just give a hand. Yeah, and then one of my colleagues now in the US is a cousin of one of the guys and just it was, it was all hands on deck. And a lot of people are still around within the distillery and as we grow and all that. So Then how did you end up in Chicago and being the face in America? Uh, I don't know. Well, I suppose <laughs> I've had a variety of different roles. Also a lot of experience working in this market, in the U.S. market, yes? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's a big focus market for us. So, so I sort of how that came about is... I originally self-distributed, which was a pain. And you have to go to people and you have to sell it to them. And then you have to collect money off them. Right. And then you have to sell it to them again. Right. It's like having a newspaper route. <laughs> There's business. It used to be having a newspaper route and a debt collector's business at the same time. So. Right. right. <laughs> we did that. And then we were sort of begging distributors to take us in Europe. So that's run like export market. And then we signed with an importer in the US and I moved over here to sort of run to run that and there was one market which was massachusetts which a big irish whiskey market but everyone's told us we shouldn't go there because a certain brand had it all wrapped up <coughs> and then i grew that we don't talk about other whiskeys but then we grew that very successfully we're number three irish whiskey within the state of massachusetts still to this day great which is which is crazy which is beating out you know big multinationals and then we started to expand and I started to work with that and work visiting those markets and all that. And then we have a new importer going back probably a couple of years and strategic partner and they're headquartered in Chicago. And you know, the sort of ask was to, to, to come back, to come over here and, and help as we, as we grow it out. And we'd launched California and then launching, the, you know, Washington state and all that. And then COVID hit. So now this is where I am. This is where you are. 
So that's it. So I've had a variety of different roles. And, uh, and how do you like Chicago? I like Chicago a lot. It's, it's a great food and drinking scene and there's great craft cocktails, great outdoor spaces. And mm-hmm. it really feels like it's opening up and people are just, you know, and a lot of the restaurants have taken over the the area in front of their establishment right. mm-hmm. for outdoor meetings. And it's almost like the, like big areas of the city are pedestrianized. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very much. A, it's a, yeah, it's happening mm-hmm. here too. Yeah. Yeah, there's a good feeling around it. Yeah. Yeah. Los Angeles, uh, a lot of cities, there are historically regulations against sidewalk dining. Yeah. It's very anti-European, if you will. Everywhere. Yeah. Where sidewalk dining is, you know, yeah. it's a thing. It's part of the culture. Yeah. In many U.S. cities, it's not. But the pandemic has changed that. I know Los Angeles had regulations against it. And now the mayor is saying, I have every intention of maintaining this going forward. So I think that's going to happen in a lot of U.S. cities. And I think that's a beautiful thing. That's going to be fantastic. And it gives people options as well. Right. Especially, you know, if it's flu seasons or there's a second go around or outbreaks, whatever it is, it's safer to be outside. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Yeah. 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 Indeed. Look, the flu was in utter abeyance this year because people were masked and not shaking hands. And everything they were doing to avoid COVID infection are the same things one should do to avoid the flu. Yeah. So it's it's funny how that goes, isn't it? Yeah. And another thing that I like to have when I'm having a flu is a hot toddy, which I make with whiskey. (laughs) So let's get on to this next one. Mm. Uh, The pot still. Let's talk the pot still. Pot still. I love this pot still. still. This is a project we've been working on for about six years. This is a completely different kettle of fish um, in relation to the double barrel. They could not be further apart. Exactly. And so what I'd probably start with is the whiskey itself. So this is a pot still whiskey. So pot still whiskey is the defining point within Irish whiskey. It's a style that can only be made on the island of Ireland. It's geographically protected. And like everything within Irish whiskey, that it all came out by the English. So in the 1700s, Irish single malts were dominant. And that's what people were producing. That's what they were aging in these rare price cash, sharing Madeira cast. That's what they were shipping out to the world. The distilleries were very good at evading tax. Barrels would go missing and things would be misreported and all of that type of thing. And one of these (laughs) fell off the lorry. Yeah. Yeah. All that type of stuff. Fell off the lorry, broke in the street. (laughs) But in any case, they introduced a tax that had not gone effect. So they introduced a malt tax in 1785. And this malt tax led innovative distillers to start utilizing unmalted barley because malted barley was taxed extremely heavily. So this enabled them to start messing around with the mash bill, barley being key, but using unmalted barley, which is also known as green barley, in the mash with malted barley. And they said it was the purest thing that ever came to the pot still. They call it pure pot still whiskey or single pot still whiskey or Irish pot still whiskey. Mm-hmm. A new style of whiskey was born in the late 1700s. It became really, as I said, the defining point in, in Irish whiskey. That style absolutely took off. And throughout the 1800s, right up into the early 1900s, pot still whiskey was Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's estimated that 8 out of 10 bottles of whiskey that were drank globally were pot still whiskey. And pot still whiskey, it's renowned for two sort of key characteristics. It's renowned for its texture. It's big, it's oily, it's robust. You know, it's often said there's eating and drinking in a glass of pot still. And this is because the addition of 
that green barley is oily. It's oily. It's oily in in the mash. It's oily before distillation. It's oily after distillation. Then anyway, the second thing is it has this sort of tangy underlayer of a spice, mm-hmm. and they call it like a pot still characteristic. Mm-hmm. So. Us being us, we're fascinated with pot still whiskey. Everyone in Irish whiskey loves pot still whiskey. It's what is going to be, what's going to be the, the sort of new wave going forward. So what this is, is a triple distilled pot still whiskey. It's two thirds unmalted barley, one third malted barley. That's only where the story starts with this. It's a single cask offering. We sustainably felled 14 trees in the Wicklow Mountains, wow. just around the distillery. We work with a, a very cool forestry up there and a guy called Paddy Piercer. But those 14 trees yielded 50 casks. Is that what this is a, a symbol of? It's all traceable back to the tree. So if you actually type in the bottle, the tree you have, the cask, the batch, the bottle, all of those notations on the front into that link on the website... It's going to show you a video yeah. of how we chose that tree, how we brought it down, half the quarter staved it, how we built the barrel, how we toasted the barrel, how we filled it with whiskey, and how we took it back. So that's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. I have tree number four. I'm also tree number four. I am tree number eight. But in any case, so true traceability right back to the tree. So from bottle back to the tree, which is really cool. For every tree that we take down, we actually plant seven more mm-hmm. in the Wicklow Mountains. And to this day, we've actually put over a thousand of indigenous Irish trees into the Wicklow Mountains. And we actually just won an Icon of Whiskey Award for the most sustainable distillery on the island of Ireland. That's awesome. I'm actually going to get to the best bit now. Wonderful. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> the trees themselves are a rare native breed of Irish oak called Dargalda that used to have 90% coverage on the island of Ireland. Now it's 0.02%. Oh, wow. So this is through shipbuilding from the English. There we go. An invasive species coming in. Essentially, it was almost almost cleared out. And then these invasive beech trees came up. Mm -hmm. And so we are very lucky where we are that some of the only remaining Irish oak trees are in mountainous regions. Mm -hmm. I don't know, manor houses, we're next to both. The breed itself is extremely fast growing. Okay. It has thinner cell walls. So it's very, very porous. You get this deeper interaction with the actual whiskey itself. Mm-hmm. And it yields into this weird flavor profile. One is like this sort of sticky toffee pudding, this like rich, rich sweetness, almost molassesy maple syrup quality. And then the second one has this sort of deeper tannin, like almost herbaceous sort of leafy tree bark element to it. And we went around the world looking at different breeds of oak and doing sort of mad stuff with Mizanara and all this type of thing. But it sort of brought us back home when we learned more and more about our own indigenous oak. And we thought it was only right that Irish whiskey was aged in Irish oak, specifically this style. And it, it leans into a flavor profile that went by the wayside. Because in a bit, this is not much of a jump. But if you think we've been still on the island of Ireland from the 6th century, we used to have 90% coverage on the island of Ireland of this indigenous oak tree. And people used to store stuff in barrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not much of a jump to say people aged their spirit, whether it's putching and mixed mash builds, what have you, in our own indigenous oak. Right. And there was a flavor element that was, that was put to it. But because of factors of history, but this is a flavor profile like a terroir-driven flavor profile yeah. that went by the wayside. And I love this whiskey, and I'm so proud of this because it celebrates 
and also protects that. Mm -hmm. So it celebrates that flavor profile and then sets it up for the future. Indeed. So here's a distribution question for you. We have both of the whiskeys, the Puccine and the two gins. Are these all available in all the states that you said were you were distributing in? Yeah. You're all in all the states. 22 states, okay. We have good distribution. We're always working on more. We are available through the great people. So I know you're in California, so K&L or Mission. Mm -hmm. And then nationally, we are available through Reserve Bar. Okay. You ship to nearly every state. Yeah. So not quite every state. I think there's, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if they do Alaska, Hawaii, but they do everywhere like 40 something states. So it, mm-hmm. even if you're in a, a state that doesn't have distribution, you're actually able to get our stuff and they did agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love Reserve Bar. They're awesome. Back to the oak for a moment. In season one, we've interviewed Matt Hoffman. I know, yeah, yeah. Distiller at Westland Distillery in Seattle. You know Matt? Yeah, yeah. I, I've met him a couple of times at, the, at the, all the, this is yeah. BC before COVID. Right, right. At all the whiskey shows. Yes. And yeah, and then I have a friend who, his name's Chris Rabick, and uh, he works with Westland and has been with Westland for a good amount of time. Okay. Yeah, no, we love what they do. Yeah. So Matt ages some of his whiskey in Gariana Oak, Quercus Gariana, mm-hmm. which is native to the Pacific Northwest of North America. And it grows in a very, very long, but very narrow, well, not terribly long, but very narrow strip. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. They age some of the oak in it. And it's, it's a protected species. It's a protected species. So really all they can use States. is the dead trees that fall down. So it's I wanted to ask, similarly, do you guys have any restrictions with your type of tree or is it, you know, anybody can use it or is it endangered at all considering? There's no real restrictions. There's just not a huge amount of availability and there's not a lot of uh, access to it, I suppose. And again, we're, we're very lucky with where we are. And in terms of our like true sustainability, every tree we plant is fully protected and will never be chopped down. Wow. So do you not plant any for yourself for a later use? We have ones that we've selected that we want to continue to use, but we'll only choose like older trees. So typically how we do it, it's in this thing that I always mess up saying, it's continuous forest coverage management systems, which needs an acronym or something like that, right? But the way we'll actually choose these trees is we go into the woods, we work with a forester there, and we select these older trees that are more at risk to actually fall down and damage other trees. We'll select them in areas like two, three at a time to develop a clearing so we can actually replant in that area and it'll repopulate with the younger trees. So in that way, you're actually setting up the forest for success. So you're never actually clearing it out. Right. So our goal is to continuously get the older trees. Mm-hmm. I think we'll have a very lucky problem to have if it's 80 years down the line with the distillery. I'll be passed away by then and they can't have that are of age to be taken down. So how old are the trees typically that you do chop down? 80 years old to about 120. Oh wow. Is, is typically what we're looking what we're looking for, which is they're majestic and it's uh, it's beautiful to be able to put the characteristic. Have you tried a younger tree to see if the flavor profile is vastly different? We haven't. No, we haven't. Okay. Just the thought. On the trees, which is actually fascinating, is we don't actually have a cooperage at the distillery as of yet. So we actually fell these trees and then we actually shipped them to Montilla in Spain. And they'll actually dry age them Mm. for a year. 
in the climate there in order to prep the wood. Right. And then we'll actually build the barrels, use and toast them, lightly toast them with leftover oak. Mm-hmm. So there's no fuel source that's actually interacting. And all of that is just to, to get the oak seasoned to the best possibility to actually lean into the flavor profile. That's awesome. Right, right. I have a question. In, in the US, at least your Glendalock is in the Mark Anthony portfolio. Mm-hmm. Are there synergies? that you're able to capture within that family of spirits, Mm -hmm. like ex-bourbon casks and the like? I'm sure we will. You know, I think it's a great strategic partnership, you know, and they have a growing portfolio of spirits and they're they're building out a spirit, like a standalone spirits business in the US, Mm -hmm. you know, with a great team behind us. But I'm sure going forward, there's definitely going to be synergies and there's going to be ways that we could possibly do different finishings or different spirit collabs, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. So yeah, no, I think it's great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I don't remember. Did we taste the gins? I don't think we did with the LA whiskey. I don't think we've, we've actually tasted the pot still yet, to be honest. Well, I did. But no, I absolutely love this pot still, as you can tell. I love the nose of this because it has this like deep citrus wrapped up in some sweetness. It gets me to like orange marmalade. Yeah. It's like a cinnamon, orange, nutmeg, maple. Maple, nether, clove. Yeah. All of them. Yeah. Someone gave me a tasting note on this. And it stuck with me and it was like, it tastes like a well-worn and well-worked workshop, like carpenter's workshop that's a little bit dirty, but in the right way. Oh, that's a great ex. Well, let's call it Santa's workshop just to make it much more fun. Yeah. Because it's a colder climate in which where you come. So, yeah. Okay. So I think we're on to cocktails. Right. Talk to us. What do you like? What do I like? That's what this is about. Tell us what you like. How do you like to see Glendalock cocktailed? And say you walk into a bar and that's not on the menu. So if that's not on the menu, I love daiquiris. Wow. Like I love just like simple daiquiris and uh, I love gimlets as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of my stuff, the pudding has a moment and sort of had been having a moment in terms of craft cocktails because this is like multi big sort of backbone to it. And it makes a killer pisco sour. Oh. Replacing pisco uh-huh. for pudding. Sure. And it plays beautiful within sours, like New York sours, anything like classic ones with egg white. It plays beautifully in the sour space. Uh-huh. So within pudding, I would always look at that. We do have a number of places that will actually use pudding as a base spirit to make their own bitters and tinctures as well. Nice. They, they don't want a neutral grain spirit. They want a, a spirit with character and weight. Right. And a lot of people are sort of using that, which is very cool. That's awesome. For in-house bitters, that's wonderful. For in-house bitters, yeah. So it's, it's having a moment to that. And it's great to have, use it within cocktails because it has that weight, that malt characteristic. It's a great thing to play off as a base spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that can deliver more than a new grain, more than the vodka, very different to a gin. And it's almost that sort of hybrid between a vodka, whiskey, malt, Geneva-y type of thing. So within the craft cocktail, that's where they'd go with it. Right. The double barrel, I do like that in the likes of a gold rush and some of these sort of oh, yeah. lighter cocktails like that. I can see it in a gold rush, sure. It plays very well within highballs as well, mm-hmm. with like your whiskey Collins mm-hmm. as well. It sort of plays extremely well within that. Different kettle of fish again. The pot still. This is in whiskey stirred cocktails. Because of the weight of it, I like to do a twist on an old fashioned with this. Mm. I know that's an overused cocktail, 
but incorporate orange bitters and incorporate like chocolate bitters within that as well. Mm. I now know what tonight's cocktail will be. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you, I have recently been fully vaccinated. So I have ventured out of my house and it's been amazing. Like there's a local whiskey tavern here called Foreman's Tavern. It's on Foreman in Toluca Lake. I've always loved it. And the one thing about the pandemic now that we were talking about street seating before is now they have front seating in the front street and then they have parking lot in a tent in the back. So when you actually go into the tavern itself, there's very few people. Mm. But they had on their menu something called St. Kevin's Fire, which at first I thought was named after a bartender named Kevin until I found out that the lovely logo you have is of St. Kevin. The ingredients are your double barrel whiskey with St. Elizabeth Allspice Dram, simple syrup, coffee and cocoa bitters, Ooh. hickory smoke with a toasted marshmallow. Oh my God. And I am going to show you what that looks like. That is a dessert drink right there, isn't it? I mean, it's got the little toasted marshmallow. Oh my God. They do this wonderful smoking effect after they put everything in and then they toast the marshmallow and stick it on top. I would love that as an after dinner drink or next to a fire on a cold day. It's exactly when I had it. We were sitting outdoors and I had it after our meal there at the tavern. And it was just lovely. Oh, that's great. When I get back to California, I'll have to come visit. Yeah, Foreman's a great place. Nice. So it was quite tasty. In fact, I took a friend of mine there for her birthday. And when I saw it on the menu with your whiskey, I said, oh, I have to try this. And I told the bartender, I said, hey, I'm interviewing one of the owners of this whiskey company on next week. So I need to videotape this. And he goes, oh, yeah, by all means, sure. And he's like, that's awesome that you know the owners. And I'm like, yeah, oh, you know. <laughs> so. I'm kind of a big deal. Yeah, that's yeah. What I'm kind like, of yeah. a big deal. <laughs> they're going to know you at all the whiskey taverns and they're going to be like, oh, yeah, knock a couple, put a couple of those on the comp, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You'll never have to pay for another cocktail. That's the hope. That's the hope. Mm. Anyway, Donald, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, be with us tonight. And all of these expressions are fantastic the whiskeys, the poutine, yeah. the gins. Well, I actually have a confession to make. This is my first official podcast I've done. I've done like really? the Facebook Live. I've done radio shows. I've done TV. I've done um, a lot of stuff like that. But I, I've never actually done like a sit down microphone podcast. Awesome. Okay. Donald, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Learned a lot more about your tree process, which I was not aware of from the tasting that I went to last time. And a ton more about the gin, which is fantastic. And I can't wait to see how your company progresses. Thank you so much for being here. That is fantastic. Well, it was an absolute honor, pleasure. This was great fun. Or as we say in Ireland, it was great crack. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me on. And yeah, it's a pleasure to share what we've created with this and some of our spirits and our stories. So I just want to thank you both. Great. And everyone listening, of course. Donald has graciously offered a swag bag of goodies for a contest winner. So to see what's in that swag bag, check out spiritsofwhiskey.com for a photo of the goodies and enter to win. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey, Louise, nice to have you on this very hot Los Angeles day. It's also a really horrible time for me to be getting a nice summer cold. But luckily, I've had some Glendalock Irish whiskey with hot toddies, which has helped to keep my throat from burning. And it's also 
quite delicious in the hot toddy. So we brought you three whiskeys, one poutine, and two gins. Out of all of those lovely expressions, which one did you want to talk to us about pairing and or cooking with today? I started doing a little bit of reading about Glendalock, and I got very inspired by St. Kevin and the number seven, the seven churches, his seven years spent in the forest there in the Wicklow Mountains. And so it just felt only right to choose the seven-year single malt that also happens to be aged in porter casks. And I'm also a beer lover here. So yep. that spoke to me. And with the notion of foraging and hunting and fishing in, in that part of Ireland, it just seemed like I needed to make a hunter stew. And depending on where you are, a hunter stew can be different from place to place. And I'm thinking a venison hunter stew is the answer. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, it seems that there are a number of different types of wild deer running around in those parts. And I can only imagine that St. Kevin probably survived off of that, I would guess, at some point along with some foraged berries and wild herbs and so forth. So that's what I would stick into my stew. I was thinking it would be venison and root vegetables, some wild herbs, fortified with a little bit of the whiskey, maybe a splash of porter thrown in there for good measure. Nice. And then I always like to tie in my garden here in LA to everything that I'm cooking. So right now I have this big, beautiful sorrel plant and it's just so lemony and tart and lovely. And I was thinking that would be a very good chimichurri to add to this particular stew, just to lighten it and brighten it up a little bit. I'm a big fan of stew and I'm a big fan of venison and I'm a big fan of chimichurri. So this sounds totally fantastic and I can't wait to try it. And I can't wait to share this with Donald to see what he thinks. I hope he likes my take on it not having ever been there. I like to daydream about the fact that I am there when I'm making my pairings, but I'll accept any invite coming my way to visit that part of Ireland. (laughs) Absolutely. Me too. Thank you so much for sharing this with us today. And we will talk to you next week with our next pairing. That sounds good. I look forward to it. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's stories in this episode's blog post. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Sign up to become a VIP member of Spirits of Whiskey. With your membership, you'll have access to various spin-off series, including The Malting Floor, Tales from the Still, and our Telly Award-winning series, Kindred Spirits. To learn how, visit our website and click on the pop-up button. While there, check out our whiskey shop, where you can purchase books from past guests, as well as other whiskey products previously highlighted on the show. If you run a whiskey club, or if you're a member of one, and you'd like your work featured in the Spirits of Whiskey Club Corner, send us an email via our website contact form, or leave us a voice message on our anchor page. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Slanchava! Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.